Well, good morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 today. So, as they fix that and get that ready for us, would you stand and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice these things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or... Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor, immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation, distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that as we come before your word, that you teach our souls, that you call us not only to obedience and repentance, but you remind us of the grace in which we stand. We thank you for that, for our salvations, and we pray that you would instruct us today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, a little more than... well. It's actually, I guess, 20, it's hard to believe that it's been that long. David and Heather have been married 20 years? Yeah. I had originally thought that up, but then I thought, no, that can't be. (laughs) So I was about to say it again. So yeah, it is a little more than 20 years ago that I was regularly visiting a Christian man at one of the high security prisons in the foothills of Amador County. And... We would sit talking. I'd go out every few weeks, and he would. we'd go through that process. I don't know if you've ever visited at a prison, but especially the high-security prisons. It's a long and involved process to get in. usually took anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes just to get into a place where you could talk to the person. And in this particular situation, they allowed us to sit not not in that type of thing where you see in the movies that you're talking through plexiglass, but actually sit at a table. Uh, with one-on-one with this person, talking with them. And I looked around and saw a familiar face. Familiar, at least, from the evening news from a long time before that, and that was Lyle Menendez. Anyone know that name? Some of you might know that name. He and his brother were infamous in the 1980s for the crimes that they committed against their parents. They were a wealthy family, I think, down in Southern California. And... uh, It was a bad situation. They ended up murdering their parents. And Lyle sat visiting with another man a few tables over. And the person I was visiting told me about the ministry needs of the prison and made the statement that while some of the inmates 
had learned to use religion as a way to gain sympathy and occasionally a lesser sentence, that he believed Lyle's conversion to be genuine, that he was going to get married while still in prison, and that he had invited the person I was visiting, my friend, uh, to serve as his best man. <laughs> it was all so surreal, all of it. Uh, my, the friend I was visiting was serving as the assistant to the chaplain, and so that's where he'd gotten to know Lyle, and that relationship had developed. It, it was strange, but it made me think at that time of, of a story that Philip Yancey tells in one of his books. Yancey tells about the prison conversion of a, of a different infamous criminal uh, who committed even more horrific crimes than the Menendez brothers. And, and during the televised trial before his conversion, he had sat in court showing no signs of remorse. And later he was killed in prison by a fellow inmate. And after his death, television news reports were including interviews with relatives of his victims. And they said, my only regret is that he didn't live longer to suffer longer in prison. They had wanted him to continue to suffer, hopefully into an old age, and none believed that his conversion was genuine, nor did they want to consider that his conversion was genuine. And so Yancey writes this. He says, One network showed a program taped a few weeks before the man's death, and the interviewer asked him how he could possibly have committed the crimes for which he was convicted. And the answer was that these things happened before he believed in God, when he didn't believe he was accountable to anyone. He said it began with petty crime, small acts of cruelty kept going further and further. He then told of his recent conversion to faith, how he was baptized at the prison, and spent all of his time reading his Bible and Christian literature. The prison chaplain affirmed what he believed to be a genuine conversion, a fruit of the Spirit, saying that he believed the repentance to have been not only uh, sincere, but one had become one of the most faithful men at chapel. Who was this man? Jeffrey Dahmer. And when you hear Dahmer's story or you hear about Lyle Menendez, are you tempted to think that these are examples of the type of situation that my Christian friend said was manipulating the system? Isn't our natural response to kind of fold our arms and, and say, you know, it's not that easy. God isn't going to let a person, a serial murderer, off just like that, not after what he did. What are we saying in that? We say God is forgiving, but there are limits, right? Grace is not for reprobate people like him or like the people that we read about last week in chapter 1. And that's the kind of attitude that Paul is dealing with here in chapter 2. It'll be Paul's point that the self-righteous religious person is no better than the pagan that we just studied in chapter 1. In fact, in some ways, he or she is even worse. And here's the point. You may not have thought that chapter 1 applied to you. I mean, look back a page at that list, starting with verse 29, and you'll remember, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, 
covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we read that list and we say that does not describe us. Does it? We're not murderers and deceivers and haters of God and so on. Well, if you say that, if you react to that list in that way, you may be surprised by Paul's words here in chapter 2. Because Paul starts off saying, you have no excuse. Oh man, and in this case, he's really speaking generically to everyone who judges those from chapter 1. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We practice the same things? The things that we just read? Certainly not. Most, if not all of us, though, have been caught in hypocrisy. We do actually do many of the things that we tell others not to do, right? We tell our children that patience is an admirable virtue, and then we lose our temper. We tell our children not to lie, but then we find ourselves lying. We condemn pride, and then we find ourselves boasting. We say that we're not murderers like the pagans, and yet we are angry with our brother, and we curse them with our mouths or with our minds. The very thing that Jesus said was just as bad. And, and so as we keep going through the list, we find that Paul hits the target. We do the very things that we judge others for. But we choose not to think about our hypocrisy. And isn't that the same thing for which the, Paul has issue with the pagan in chapter 1? That they suppress the truth. The lost individual sees the clear truth of God's invisible attributes and the things that have been made, and he chooses to push that down and reject it and not think about it. Well, what do the religious people do? They have the law and the gospel. They know the standards of God, but they choose to suppress the truth that they have done the very same things in the people as the people that they condemn. Jesus addressed that type of attitude, right, in the Sermon on the Mount. Time and again, he would use the formula, you have heard it said, which he's kind of going through a, a chapter one list. You've heard it said not to do these things, and all the people would say, yes, and we haven't done it, right? They would, they would in essence, be the judges of those in chapter one, that list. And then Jesus would say, but I tell you, you have. And his explanation of the true spirit and principle of God's law would include all of those who were very clearly and safely separating themselves from that chapter one list. And the average self-righteous Jewish individual, which is Paul's target in chapter two, believed that God was going to blast those people out of existence because of their sin. They were like Jonah who believed that a righteous God would wipe out the Ninevites of the world even if they repented. And when Nineveh actually did repent, Jonah was angry. 
David and I visited the Assyrian church, as you know, a few weeks ago. We talked at the end of our meeting about the heritage that they trace all the way back to Jonah coming over reluctantly as sent by the Lord. And, you know, you, you think through the mercy of God to generations of those in that Assyrian region. But the self-righteous individual that Paul is addressing never wanted that to take place. To be born of Abraham, to be circumcised, that was to be exempted from God's judgment. In fact, Judaism had some interesting sayings. One of them was, God loves Israel alone of all the nations. Clearly, I was missing the point in reading the Old Testament. Another one, God will judge the Gentiles with one measure and the Jews with another. Is it any wonder that Paul turns to this type of smug and self-righteous individual in chapter 2? And as I said, he, Paul isn't just addressing the Israelites though, right? Because he says, oh man, he says it generically at the very beginning. It's for every person who considers himself a religious person. There are many people who think they've escaped the judgment of God because they acknowledge that he exists and they go to church and they keep most of the rules and believe that they are righteous and therefore in comparison to those from chapter 1, they will not face the wrath of God. And as one theologian has said, there's a little voice and many people that convinces them that in the end, despite their sin, everything will be okay. And that's why you hear so many people say, I believe in God, and I believe I'm going to heaven. I've been a good person. I'm not like them. And that's why I also say moral, self-righteous people are actually harder people to reach sometimes. Harder than the pagans who have rejected religion. And so Paul goes from the atheist, let's say, in chapter 1 to this type of individual in chapter 2 and with great force and clarity, he points out that the religious person who dies relying upon his own righteousness is going to find himself in the same hell as the Gentile pagan idolater who does not turn and stop suppressing the truth. In fact, if the heathen is without excuse, Paul goes on to say the religious person is even more without excuse. Remember how Jesus, during his ministry, said that the cities around him who had been witnessing his miracles, they were even under greater condemnation than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why does he say that? He says, because you have directly experienced the full revelation of God in the incarnate Son of God. Well, you person in chapter 2, you have God's word. And friends, if Paul is talking to the Israelites who had the old, what we have as the Old Testament scriptures, what would he say about us who have the Old and New Testament scriptures, who have 2,000 years of history? I think he'd say it with even greater clarity to us today. Pay attention to what I'm saying in this chapter. 
Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We don't want to be a people who get all dressed up and have that phony exterior and facade when inside we are full, and that image is great, of dead people's bones and uncleanness and hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know what's going on in your heart, in your mind. You know yourself. Romans 2, 2, Paul says, we know that the judgment of God of rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And so what he's really saying is it doesn't matter what we tell ourselves. It doesn't matter what the exterior looks like. It doesn't matter that we attend church every, every week, read 17 chapters of the Bible a day, give to local charities, support conservative Republican political candidates. God's judgment is according to truth. He doesn't judge the action. He judges what? The heart. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about how God makes known the secrets of the heart. So friends, there is no secret from God. Nothing hidden from him. And he judges fairly, justly, righteously. And so in verse 3, Paul puts his finger on this temptation that we face to say, I will escape God's judgment. I'll paraphrase him to say, you rejoice. Now, I'll, I'll apply it to myself because there are times when, when our family's driving down the freeway and we f hear the sound of somebody's engine that must be going 110 miles an hour come loudly up behind us barely miss us as they swerve around us into the lane, go on the left of us, or sometimes the right of us, even sometimes in the exterior lane, you know, and, and they're weaving in, then comes their buddy, comes up, and, and you're going, I sure hope there's a policeman up there. Right? You've, you've been there, haven't you? And so Paul says, you rejoice to see that driver get pulled over by the highway patrolman up ahead that was eating his donut. You are, you are happy about that, but then you think that when you break the law, you get a pass because you're a good driver. But good drivers don't break the law in the first place, right? And if others can't escape your judgment, Paul is saying, do you really think you will escape God's judgment? What standard are you measuring things by? And then we read verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And that's, that's a very interesting statement. Paul, what were the self-righteous focusing according to the first three verses? They were focusing upon the law and the judgment of pagans. Paul says that that focus was leading them to ignore God's attributes of kindness, 
patience and long-suffering. And it doesn't make sense at first. Because you say, isn't it all right to emphasize God's holiness and wrath and judgment? Yes. But not if you don't apply that to yourself and not if you ignore God's kindness and patience. And I'll try and explain that better. You can be super careful in the smallest of things, attempting to please God by attention to detail. But you can't fail to remember that God is good. And it isn't legal detail that leads to repentance. It isn't superior knowledge of Scripture. It is God's patience and his kindness. That's what verse 4 is saying. We think that we repent because we believe that God is going to get us if we don't. But if we're believers, God is not going to get us. He's already placed his wrath for our sin upon the back of Jesus, and there's no more condemnation in Christ. So what drives us to repentance before God if we know that we're not going to face condemnation? What drives us to repentance? Verse 4 says, the kindness of God in showing us mercy. God says to his people, I loved you before the foundation of the world. I loved what you would become even while you were yet a sinner at war against me. That's why I died for you. And what we're supposed to do is recognize that truth and be in awe of a God who would love us despite being enslaved in sin and at war against him. It removes our self-reliance. It removes our independence. And we respond in, in gratefulness and in love to that kind of love towards us. That's why Paul would say, I am constrained. I am moved by the love of Christ. So here's the interesting thing, friends. God's love or God's law convicts us of sin. But God's love and kindness drive us to repentance. So for the self-righteous person who in chapter 2 assumes that God's favor towards them had removed them from his judgment and had become a false security... When that person assumed that just because they were born into a religious community that they were saved, it was easy to take for granted God's grace, and it actually leads to this open license for sin in so many people. It's an interesting irony. But the truth is that if you understand, I'm not exempted from God's judgment because I was born into this community. I'm exempted from his judgment because God was serious about sin and he judged that sin in Christ. And he was long-suffering enough to work and intervene in my life that I would change in my heart and in my faith position towards him. And I came to him and I still stand in grace before him At his throne, it's in that kind of attitude that it moves us to repentance. 
Perhaps we can understand why Jesus once said that a tax collector who is convicted by his sin is closer to heaven than the Pharisee who thinks he'll make it to heaven because he's a grandson of Abraham. It's easier to be a doctor for those who know they are sick than for those who think they are well. And what is going to happen to all those self-assured people? What does verse 5 say? Because of your hard and impenitent heart. They are not impenitent. They are spending their energy in judging the people of chapter 1. Assuming their exemption from God's judgment. What's happening? They are storing up wrath, Paul says, for themselves on the day of wrath where God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And I hope that doesn't describe you this morning. Because as we see in verse 6 and following, he will render to each one according to his works. That's a scary thought, isn't it? There will be tribulation and distress, Paul says, for every human being who does evil. Both the Jew and the Greek, which really is meant to be everyone. And at first, as we read these verses in 6 through 11, it appears that Paul is teaching a doctrine of salvation by works. When he says things like, he will render to each one according to his works. Or later down near the bottom of that section, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. It appears that he's teaching a, a doctrine of salvation by works. And there's a sense in which that is true in, the, in that it is salvation by perfect works. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam that he could obey the Lord and live. But in the moment he disobeyed, he would die. And it's not that God is some kind of mean perfectionist ogre that's just waiting for you to fail. But rather, he is a perfectly holy, just, righteous God. He will not dwell in eternity with sin, and he must judge sin. And what is the solution? Well, only one person ever perfectly fulfilled the law. That was Jesus Christ. And our salvation is through his perfect work and his substitutionary death on our behalf. So in that sense, our salvation is through Jesus' works. But why does Paul here talk about rendering to each one according to his own works? The answer must be that a day is coming when God will judge everything that we did and that we said and even the secret things that we thought and which motivate us. And God says, I will not be fooled. I know your hearts. I know your motives. We've already seen in chapter 1 how the truth of God is known by all men and women. We've seen the suppression of the truth by the pagan. We've seen the hypocrisy of the religious in chapter 2. So if God knows all of those things, and if perfect obedience is the standard, as he shared with Adam in Garden of Eden, how can there be any hope if each person is accountable to his own works? Well, let's read the next few verses. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And if you stop there for a moment, here again, Paul says that the important thing is not possessing the law or being descendants of Abraham or hearing the law. The important thing is doing what the law requires. But what about those non-Jews that don't have the law of Moses that was, as it was revealed in the Scriptures? Well, read on. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Well, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that those who don't have the revealed law of God will be judged according to their own standards. He's also saying that one can observe other cultures and see that there is at least some reflection of the knowledge of God's moral principles in their lives. What Paul describes as a type of law written on their heart. Most cultures, for example, value taking care of children or protecting against murder or theft and a host of other things that kind of bear a resemblance to biblical principles. What is Paul not saying? He is not saying that the Gentiles obeyed these internal laws necessarily for the right reasons. In fact, he says that their own conscience would accuse or excuse any given action. He is also definitely not saying that the Gentiles obeyed this law perfectly. For he says that the Gentiles who sinned without the law will also die without the law. Just like the Jews who were judged by the revealed law of the scriptures would die under the law. Both perish. Because God is perfect, holy. And essentially Paul is circling us back to the first chapter. All people have enough evidence about God. Displayed in the things he has made in order to be held accountable for their actions. Men and women even possess a certain moral sense of rightness and wrongness. And each person's conscience will on that last day, bear judgment and testimony before God. But all ultimately without God's merciful intervention in Christ will die in their sin. All are condemned before God. But God has been kind and long-suffering. And we have two possible responses to that. We can either be moved by the love of God, motivated to repentance, or we can push it far away from us. You said you liked C.S. Lewis, so I'll quote him for you. No sooner do we believe, Lewis says, that God loves us than there is an impulse to believe that he does so, not because he is love, but because we are lovable. The ancients once said that a good man is dear to the gods because he, the man, is good. And you could add to that, you know, heroic and strong and courageous and all the things that impress the gods of Olympus. Lewis says, we being better taught resort to more subtle reasoning. 
Far be it from us to think that we have virtues for which God would love us, of course. But then look at how magnificently we repented. Lewis goes on, as Bunyan says, describing his first false conversion, I thought there was no better man in England that pleased God than I. Beaten out of this initial thought, we next offer our own humility to God's admiration. Surely he'll like that. Or if not that, what about our clear-sighted and humble recognition that we still lack humility? Why, God has to love that. And thus depth upon depth and subtlety within subtlety, there remains some lingering idea of our own attractiveness to God. And friends, we are surrounded by a world that loves celebrities and heroes, strong, they're impressed by power and influence and wealth. God is impressed by Christ. And he's given his son dominion over all creation and made him our wisdom and our righteousness. And through Christ, we are justified, released from the penalty of death for our sin. He is our sanctification. He is the possibility and the avenue through which we are made holy and liberated every day from sin. He is our redemption. He is our glory. He is our inheritance. And we are completely, utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ. Alone, we are nothing, but in him we are invaluable. And that is what Paul wants to convince us of in these two chapters. The difference between a saved man, hear this friends, the difference between a saved man or woman and a lost man or woman in the Lord lies in the Lord and his kindness. Not in us. If we boast at all, we should not boast in ourselves or in other men. We should only boast in him. The difference between a lost Man and a saved man lies in the Lord and his kindness. God told Jeremiah this in Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. And look at again, verse 4 of Romans 2, right here. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And friends, and I particularly wanted to direct this thought to you, children. If there's anything about you that you think is worthy of salvation while others deserve God's judgment, if you don't trust in Jesus Christ and his perfect work and his substitutionary death for your salvation, and if you think that it's because your parents are bringing you here every single week to church and because you're being raised in a family that has their Bible out in the mornings and talks about devotions at night and so on, you need to pay attention to this chapter. 
You need to pay attention to this chapter. Because if you don't trust in the Lord through Jesus Christ and recognize that you are a sinner just like everyone else in need of salvation, then Paul says you are storing up wrath. God will, Paul says, according to the gospel, judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Study that true gospel. And one of the reasons why I'm directing that especially to you children is because I remember, especially with our older children, as they got older, and we made assumptions as parents that they were absorbing everything that we were teaching them. And we would sometimes ask them to articulate the gospel. And it was at times a struggle. And it made me realize, even as parents were making assumptions, children, they're making assumptions. Sometimes it's easy to live in that that bubble of chapter 2, isn't it? It's easy to live in the bubble of chapter 2 and just assume that we're okay because we're in a Christian family in in a nice, comfortable church together. But I encourage you, study the true gospel. Be able to articulate the gospel. Find out what it says about sin, about God's righteousness, about the way that we fool ourselves, about our own motives and desires. But here's the good news. We can actually go to heaven. Despite our sin. We can actually be with God forever. Even though when we measure ourselves by God's perfect law, we know that just like the people described in chapter 1, we do the same things. What makes us any different? Not us. God's kindness. That's what makes us different. God was merciful to us. I didn't deserve it. I know that I've lived in hypocrisy. And so Paul's gospel is everything because it teaches us that if we're in Christ, even the worst of us can spend forever with him. Isn't that good news? It's it's wonderful news. And it means somebody like a Dahmer or a Menendez or me can be forever with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and kind. and You were long-suffering and not holding to our account the sins that we committed against you. And Lord, as we read your word, and especially as we read in the Old Testament prophets and And history is how you called your people time and again in in that cycle of rebellion and sin and judgment and exile. Father, we realize just how long-suffering you are. And then we look at our own lives and the presumptions that we've made and the hypocrisy that we've lived out and and our own sin that we hide in our hearts. 
And we recognize, Lord, that we are just as bad. So thank you, Lord, for calling us to that understanding. Thank you for dying for us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for lifting us up, giving us an inheritance, giving us a purpose. May we live with intentionality. May we live with gratitude. And Lord, may we stop the hypocritical judgment, condemnation that we have in others and not see it in ourselves. Lord, help us to be perceptive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.